Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, Season 2, Episode 20, The Case for Confederation. In the last episode, we ended with the defeat of the Tilly government in New Brunswick in early March of 1865, an event which seemed to fatally wound the project to unify the colonies of British North America. This week, we're going to travel back in time to just under one month before the New Brunswick election, to the 6th of February, 1865, when the Canadian Attorney General, John A. Macdonald, rose in the parliamentary buildings at Quebec to move an address to the Queen, requesting that she pass legislation to unite the colonies of British North America based on the 72 resolutions passed at the Quebec Conference. It was a fretful time in the Canadas. The government feared an escalating conflict with America following the St. Albans raid. Canadian secret servant agents were trying to infiltrate Confederate networks in Canada and the United States to prevent further attacks on the Union from Canadian soil. And despite Canada's efforts at conciliation, the Northern government had retaliated diplomatically by announcing that anyone crossing the border now needed to present an official passport, at the time an almost unheard of irritation. The rumors emerging from the American Congress also made it seem that the Reciprocity Treaty, the agreement which so many saw as essential to trade and prosperity, was doomed. Still, in early February, when MacDonald rose to speak, he, he still believed that Confederation at least was possible. He hoped, too optimistically we now know, of a good return in the New Brunswick election. He spoke as much to history as to his colleagues, for the Canadian government had made the, at the time, unprecedented decision to record in full the parliamentary debate on Confederation. So we're going to start today by delving into these debates to see what Canadians at the time actually thought they were doing in uniting the colonies of British North America. For MacDonald, the case for Confederation began with a problem that the status quo simply could not continue. In the years before the new coalition government, Canadians had faced a clash of visions and aspirations. As he put it, such was the opposition between the two sections of the province, such was the danger of impending anarchy in consequence of the irreconcilable differences of opinion with respect to representation by population between Upper and Lower Canada, that unless some solution of the difficulty was arrived at, we would suffer under a succession of weak governments, weak in numerical support, weak in force, and weak in power of doing good. Yet, hope had come from a, a source that even MacDonald himself had opposed, from George Brown's Parliamentary Committee and its recommendations of a federal solution to the Canadian problem. MacDonald sketched in the recent history of the formation of the Union government, of the Charlottetown and Quebec conferences, which had all led up to this great opportunity. Canadians, he felt, should now rush to this opening. If we wish to be a great people, said MacDonald, if we wish to form a great nationality, commanding the respect of the world, able to hold our own against all opponents, 
and to defend those institutions we prize. If we wish to have one system of government and to establish a commercial union with unrestricted free trade between people of the five provinces, belonging as they do to the same nation, obeying the same sovereign, owning the same allegiance, and being for the most part of the same blood and lineage, if we wish to be able to afford to each other the means of mutual defense and support against aggression and attack, this can only be obtained by a union of some kind between the scattered and weak boundaries composing the British North American provinces. At this point, MacDonald's fellow uh, members of the legislature cheered his bold plan and vision. Again and again, MacDonald returned to this theme of the shared lineage and culture of British North America. The passions of inspiration here were, were not those of rebellion or independence, quite the opposite. He and his government instead cherished the connection both to Britishness and the distinctive culture of British North America itself. At Charlottetown and again at Quebec, he said, the desire to remain connected with Great Britain and to retain our allegiance to Her Majesty was unanimous. Not a single suggestion was made that it could, by any possibility, be for the interest of the colonies or of any section or portion of them that there should be a severance of our connection. Indeed, MacDonald insisted that confederation was not a, a secret stab at independence, an alternative plot to win the same victory that had been denied the rebels back in 1837. Instead, as MacDonald put it, the colonies are now in a transition state. Gradually, a different colonial system is being developed, and it will become year by year less a case of dependence on our part and of overruling protection on the part of the mother country, and more a case of a healthy and cordial alliance. Instead of looking upon us as a merely dependent colony, England will have in us a friendly nation, a subordinate but still a powerful people to stand by her in North America in peace or in war. Again, the legislature erupted in cheers. And while it's often said that Confederation was a, a pragmatic deal without any principles, MacDonald's speech showed the lie to this idea. He saw political idealism in the deal itself. It's just that he rooted political principles in the British connection. Quote, so long as that alliance with England is maintained, he argued, we enjoy under her protection the privileges of constitutional liberty according to the British system. Now, less than 20 years earlier, in 1848, European nations had descended into revolutionary chaos, fighting for constitutional guarantees. And yet, British North America had these already, and other freedoms as part of their British inheritance. MacDonald tied this to the liberal protection of minority rights. We enjoy here, MacDonald argued, that which is the great test of constitutional freedom, we will have the rights of the minority respected. And again, here, here came the cries from the floor. MacDonald continued, In all countries, the rights of the majority take care of themselves. But it is only in countries like England, enjoying constitutional liberty and safe from the tyranny of a single despot or of an unbridled democracy that the rights of minorities are regarded. This final line is one worth unpacking, the balance between 
despotism and unbridled democracy. It's a balance that many in British North America emphasized in the 1860s, the need to fend off the twin evils of tyranny on the one hand and excessive democracy, what you might also call demagoguery on the other. Now, in more recent years, I'm rather sad to say that you'll sometimes find historians pointing out these criticisms of democracy on the part of Macdonald and others as if to say that the Fathers of Confederation were devoted illiberal anti-democrats, without bothering to explain what people like Macdonald actually meant. Now, what he meant in this context was that he saw democracies, and really he meant the United States or perhaps revolutionary France, infringing on the liberties of minorities, of being too easily swayed by demagogic or populist prejudices. This is a long-standing critique and a, a tension within democratic political theory, the roots of which you can trace back to ancient Athens and Rome. You also see modern equivalents in, today in the 21st century in concerns about the dangers of populism. According to MacDonald, the Quebec resolutions avoided the mistakes of the, the demagogic republic to the south by rooting itself in monarchical principles, where the head of state was not just the representative of one or another party, but of the entire nation. And, unlike in the divided warring states to the south, in the new United Nation of British North America, it would be the general government, not the individual colonies or states, that retained the residual powers. This was to avoid another great mistake of the Americans, too much federalism. Okay, so MacDonald's speech took up the whole of the first evening. From this point on, day after day through February and into March of 1865, other speakers rose to debate the merits of Confederation. MacDonald was followed by the other leading ministers, first Cartier, then Galt, then Brown and Darcy McGee. Cartier spoke especially to French Canadians, insisting that this Confederation plan was not meant to erase their culture, that it would instead create a political nationality that valued the diversity of races within the colony. Galt then turned to the, the financial benefits of Confederation and the great benefit, as he saw, of providing the leading statesmen of the new nation with a place for their grand ambitions, freeing them from the petty municipal affairs at the local level. George Brown was next up, and for Brown, the moment was sweet. I cannot help feeling, he began, that the struggle of half a lifetime for constitutional reform the agitations in the country and the fierce contests in this chamber, the strife and the discord and the abuse of many years are all compensated by the great scheme of reform which is now in your hands. Now, perhaps more than anyone, Brown knew what was at stake. He represented the region of discontent, the voices of opposition to the current union, those who demanded that something change. And as Brown stood to address his colleagues with a, a new constitutional deal before them, he reminded his fellow British North Americans how lucky and how unique they were to be creating a new nation peacefully and not with a musket in their hands. We are endeavoring to adjust harmoniously greater difficulties than have plunged other countries into all the horrors of civil war, he said. And to those in the mid-19th century, 
they could recall plenty of recent examples where similar disputes had led to violence. Brown reminded his fellow parliamentarians of these cases in Holland and Belgium, in Austria and Hungary, Denmark, Germany and Italy. And of course, he said, we are striving to settle forever issues hardly less momentous than those that have rent the neighboring republic, that is the United States, and are now exposing it to all the horrors of civil war. Brown also had a warning to the scheme's opponents. The constitutional system of Canada cannot remain as it is now, he insisted. And to this, his colleagues shouted loudly, Hear, hear! We cannot go back to the chronic sectional hostility and discord, to a state of perpetual ministerial crises. The claims of Upper Canada for justice must be met and met now. I say then, that everyone who raises his voice in hostility to this measure is bound to keep before him when he speaks all the perilous consequences of its rejection. I say that no man who has a true regard for the well-being of Canada can give a vote against this scheme unless he is prepared to offer in amendment some better remedy for the evils and injustice that have so long threatened the peace of our country. Brown admitted that the Quebec resolutions were not perfect. He himself might have wanted more, but this was not just about the wishes of upper Canadian Protestants. The French Canadians, he claimed, must have their views consulted as well as us. This scheme cannot be carried, and no scheme can be, that has not the support of both sections of the province. And here his, his fellow minister Cartier shouted, Here, here, this is the question. When Brown finished, Darcy McGee took his turn. And I won't even attempt to do justice to Darcy McGee's witty speech. So much of McGee's charm is, seems to have come from allusions to shared knowledge that most of us no longer have, and speaking warmly and amusingly in the moment to shared jokes. But what was perhaps McGee's most famous lines are worth repeating. There has always been a desire amongst them, he said, and here he meant the Americans, for the acquisition of new territory. They coveted Florida and seized it. They coveted Louisiana and purchased it. They coveted Texas and stole it. And then they picked a quarrel with Mexico, which ended by their getting California. Here, here came the cries from the, from, from the galleries. Had we not the strong arm of England over us, we should not now have had a separate national existence. Again, cheers. The acquisition of Canada was the first ambition of the American Confederacy and never ceased to be so when her troops were a handful and her navy scarce a squadron. Is it likely to be stopped now when she counts her guns afloat by thousands and her troops by hundreds of thousands? Now many warned of and feared American belligerents, but rarely so movingly as McGee. Once the ministers finished, the debate continued, and of course, the opponents came to the fore. They were few, fewer in number and scattered in their criticisms, but not without force. The most politically influential opponent was Dorian and the roughly 25 Rouge members from Lower Canada. They represented a potentially serious challenge to Cartier and the government. If Dorian could convince Lower Canadians that by entering into confederation, Cartier was abandoning his people, 
that he was jeopardizing the French-Canadian nation, then support for the scheme might flounder. Yet, Dorion's speech to the Assembly was uncharacteristically ineffective. He spent his time defending himself, explaining why he'd previously advocated a wider union and now did not support this scheme, and then criticizing MacDonald for the same thing, for changing his mind on the scheme itself. His address the previous November, which we talked about in a previous episode, had been much more powerful and principled. If this was the best the Rouge had to offer, Cartier and his colleagues could feel secure. Yet, night after night, the debate lingered on, all through February and even after the news came of Tilly's defeat in New Brunswick. Finally, on the 11th of March, late in the night, the division bell rang and the tired members picked a side. At 4.30 a.m., Confederation passed the Canadian Parliament, 91 votes in favour and 33 opposed. I hope you'll excuse the fact that I've quoted so freely from these speeches. In reality, I'm, I'm drawing out only the shortest of excerpts. But history, I think, really comes alive when you immerse yourself in the words and thoughts and ideas of the past. Too often we we think we know what those in the past believe based on received wisdom and really a few lines of summary from a textbook. Each generation has its certainties, what it thinks it knows of the past. And these facts are always partly true, but they're only true in the way you, your description of your neighbor is true. Yes, you can describe them in a few words, but is this all they, they really are? So I think for those with, with patience and curiosity, I'd, I'd highly recommend reading these speeches yourself, which are all now freely available online. Still, in early March of 1865, for the men who had left Quebec only a few short months ago, optimistic and determined to to create a new nation within the year, the Canadian vote was but a, a sliver of good news amidst a growing avalanche of ill fortune. New Brunswick now was lost, and soon more bad news came from Prince Edward Island. We saw last episode that the the pro-Confederate premier had already resigned back in December of 1864. Then, in late February, the Conservative government brought Confederation to be debated in the Colonial Assembly. Now, it's true that some islanders favoured Confederation, but they were few in number. And the new premier himself, J.C. Pope, proposed an anti-Confederation resolution. As the island legislatures each rose to speak in late February and March, it soon became clear that here too the locals would turn against the Quebec resolutions. The islanders, you know, they warned of excessive taxes that would come in a united British North America and excessively high tariffs that would cut off island trade. Confederation might force islanders also into military service in the militia or a, a British North American army. There might be conscription. And the promise of financial compensation to the colony, the fees that would come to the island in order to run the new local government, the 80 cents per head on which island government would have to exist, well, this seemed a paltry sum. And then there were the matters raised at Quebec itself by some of the delegates, the resentment at what representation by population would mean for the tiny island, relegating it to a perpetually marginal place in the wider union. At the end of March, the Speaker called for a division and the island assemblymen defeated the Quebec resolutions 
overwhelmingly by a vote of 23 to 5. So that's two down in New Brunswick and PEI. We already saw what happened in Nova Scotia, where an anti-Confederate campaign, anonymously led by Joseph Howe, forced the Tupper government to make no mention of the Quebec resolutions in its speech from the throne early in the new year. Then, after the defeat in New Brunswick, Tupper decided that he'd have to continue his strategy of delay. He was not prepared to introduce the scheme into the assembly only to have it defeated. Tupper stalled by saying that the the time might not yet be ripe for confederation and then performed a a kind of bait and switch by raising, yet again, the idea of maritime union. You know that idea that none of us are excited about and which we've already pretty much rejected? How about talking about that again? Then, in April of 1865, even as the fate of the Quebec Resolution seemed more bleak than ever, Large events south of the border gave British North Americans much to ponder. The bloodbath of the American Civil War suddenly came to an end. The southern capital of Richmond fell to the north on the 3rd of April, and then six days later, General Lee surrendered his army. The American Civil War was finally over. This meant a great many things to Americans from all sides, But for British North Americans, it meant that they would now face the future some had been fretting about all along. The answer to that scary question, what would the American government do with its vast array of weapons and soldiers? What would the possibly unemployed soldiers do, especially those of Irish descent? Hint, hint, we'll come back to that question next week. Yet hard on the heels of this news came another tragedy. The war may have ended, but it had one more victim to claim. The American president, Abraham Lincoln, made his fateful visit to Ford's Theater on the night of the 14th of April. There, an angered actor and Southern sympathizer, John Wilkes Booth, snuck into the president's booth and shot him at close range in the back of the head. For British North Americans, the immediate lessons of What happens when a scheme of federalism fails, when the different sections do not get along, were never more obvious than at the very moment they were contemplating creating their own federal nation. Back in Canada, in the midst of the uncertain international situation, and especially in the wake of the maritime setbacks for the Quebec resolutions, the coalition government began to squabble. The coalition had only ever been, especially for George Brown, a temporary accommodation. He had no desire to work side by side with MacDonald and his ilk. And now, the hoped-for solution to their problems, a wider confederation of British North America, based on representation by population, seemed far off. In Cabinet, Brown insisted that the government seriously consider Plan B. And Plan B was the smaller federation, the federation of the Canadas alone. It was definitely, for Cartier and MacDonald, much the worse option. Still, they had to compromise, and so they promised Brown that if nothing had come of confederation by the first sitting in 1866, they would turn to the smaller, Canadian-only federation project. Meanwhile, the government got to work selecting delegates for a trip to London to lobby for more money for defense 
and to pressure the Brits to exert more influence in getting Confederation into action. Cartier and MacDonald, as well as Galt and Brown, all went abroad. And so in mid-April of 1865, the unlikely duo of John A. MacDonald and George Brown sailed across the Atlantic together, trying, at least temporarily, to be friendly. On board ship, they went to, to dances and concerts, and even apparently a seance. To keep things interesting, they did sword exercises and even played tag. Yes, yes, really. In London, they received a genuinely royal welcome with invitations to balls and dinners and country homes. The Prince of Wales, whom they all knew from his visit to Canada only a few years earlier, took them under his wing. He invited them to private parties and even entertained them in his smoking room where he apparently lounged about in his Turkish dressing gown. John A. loved it all, while Brown soon tired of the frivolity. In the British Parliament, meanwhile, the liberal Gladstonians who wanted to be done with British imperial entanglement in places like Canada were pushed back by the pro-Empire faction. The Canadians won from the British cabinet a commitment to push harder for confederation and to attempt to renew the reciprocity treaty with the United States. George Brown also wrote home to say that the British had agreed to hand over the lands of the Hudson's Bay Company to Canada, provided the company itself could be compensated properly. And we will talk a fair bit more about this next season. For now, the Canadians were at least somewhat mollified and, and hopeful after their visit. Once back in Canada, the Canadian government prepared to move the Parliament from Quebec to the new capital at Ottawa, the, the lumber town that now housed the impressive Gothic buildings atop the cliffs over the Ottawa River. But then, on the 30th of July, the figurehead leader of the government, Etienne Taché, the man who was set above MacDonald, Cartier, and Brown to keep all things equal in the triumvirate, well, he died. The governor-general, faced with the prospect of selecting another figure to now invite to head up Her Majesty's government, invited John A. MacDonald out to breakfast and asked if he would lead the government. MacDonald was a logical choice and was seen by most to be the key figure in the government and in the negotiations for confederation, but this honor did not go down well with Brown. The reformer refused to sit in a MacDonald government. The whole coalition worked, he said, because of the equality of the different sections. There was no way MacDonald and his small group of upper Canadian Tories could be raised up. So to appease Brown, the Governor-General went and found an inoffensive figure to again serve as a kind of honorary Prime Minister. This time it was Sir Narcisse Bellot who was in the Legislative Council. Bellot agreed, but the whole scenario showed that despite the games on board ship to, to England, Brown was not happy. The coalition was a truce, not a friendship. The late summer also saw British troops being sent to Prince Edward Island. The whole crisis of the land question had finally risen to such a crescendo that the civil authorities could not govern, or at least they believed, without troops in the colony. A band of tenants and squatters had formed an organization called the Tenant League. All through 1865, they'd engaged in acts of defiance, resisting paying rents, and then also resisting constables or agents who came to evict the tenants. 
It hadn't turned violent, but there were plenty of cudgels and muskets on hand and threats of violence. So in came a troop of British regulars from the garrison at Halifax to ensure that the rule of law could be carried out. And that's where things stood at the end of the summer of 1865. The prospects for confederation looked bleak indeed. Although the province of Canada had endorsed confederation, confederation had been defeated at the polls in one colony, New Brunswick, defeated in the legislature in another, Prince Edward Island, and was largely being ignored in two other colonies, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. If you were a betting person and you wanted safe odds, you would not have put your money on the success of British North American Confederation. Thanks so much for listening to episode 20. It's been a while since we got the last one out, but uh, we're now going to make a little bit better progress. We're now up to the autumn of 1865. The next episode, help comes from a very unlikely source, a source which initially looked threatening. That is, the band of Irish revolutionaries known to history as the Fenians. The Fenians had their own schemes, and they largely involved fighting against the British Empire. For some of the Fenians, this meant striking at what they saw as Britain's exposed flank, its colonies in North America. But there's nothing like a good external or sometimes internal enemy to unite a people together. And that's exactly what was about to happen. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please do leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Drop me a line to let me know what you think about the show. Until next time, remember... There's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.